Welcome to Great Minds with Michael Medved. Okay, if scientists do succeed in proving that we are totally alone in the universe, no other form of life anywhere else, does that prove the existence of God? A production of the Discovery Institute. It's a mind-blowing discovery. It changes everything. On this episode... Is intelligent design disproven if all of a sudden we have some space probe that finds in a nearby galaxy Mm -hmm. somehow that there are some kinds of organisms, living organisms. It is, is that the end of intelligent design? Not at all. In fact, the question of intelligent design does sort of weigh on the commonality or the rarity of life. If we found life that was sort of easily explained in, in terms of random or impersonal causes, yeah, that might be the case. But uh, it's, for me, it's an open question whether life is rare or common in the universe. Whether it's intelligently designed is a separate question. That and more on this episode of Great Minds with Michael Medved. Here's Michael. This is Michael Medved, and many of you know that I do a daily radio show that goes across the country where we talk about the news of the day and the issues of the moment, issues that go forward with great passion and fierce debate. And you know what? So many times it happens that you sort of turn around, I mean, even a couple of months later, and it seems that the stuff that we were talking about is from another era. It uh, ages very quickly. One of the things that we're doing in this special series sponsored uh, by my friends at Discovery Institute, a series called Great Minds with Michael Medved, is trying to look at things that don't change, the never-ending questions, eternal questions, if you will. Uh, For instance, questions about, are we alone in the universe? Is it ridiculous to think that planet Earth is the only place anywhere where a civilization might have emerged? Or do we actually have 156 million other civilizations somewhere in the universe, as has been uh, calculated by some experts? Uh, We'll explore those questions and more with my very special guest, Dr. Jay Richards. He is the author of a very provocative book, which actually changed my thinking permanently on some of these issues. The book is called The Privileged Planet. And yes, it makes a case for Earth's exceptionalism. Uh, Dr. Richards uh, graduated from the Princeton Theological Seminary with his PhD with honors. He is a professor at the School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. He is a senior fellow of Discovery Institute and executive editor of the web journal, The Stream. Uh, Jay, it's great to speak with you. It's great to be with you, Michael. Thank you so much. Now, the very first question um, about this subject Mm. is everyone has heard the Carl Sagan Mm -hmm. formulation that there are billions and billions (laughs) and billions of stars. Isn't it preposterous to think that of all of these billions and billions of stars in the known universe, Mm. that the only solar system, the only little speck of dust, Mm that would have an intelligent situation would be right here? Isn't that preposterous? It seems preposterous until you look at the details. I mean, because of course, the, your general impression of people is it's something like in the observable universe, 
10 to the 22 stars. So 100 billion stars in the Milky Way and 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So that's a lot of space. Okay, so it's 100 billion times 100. 100 billion, exactly. Do we have, how do we express that kind of number? Only with exponents, 10 (laughs) 10 to the 22, right? We have no gazillion. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. And so it's a very large number. Uh, But you have to balance that by the factors that are needed for habitability. This is what so-called astrobiologists study. That is, what are the things that you need in a planetary environment uh, that make possible the existence of complex life, of carbon-based life? We know from chemistry that if you're going to have life anywhere in the universe that is chemically-based life, it's going to take place in the context of liquid water, and it's going to be based on carbon chemistry. And so that alone, just a simple piece of knowledge from chemistry, drastically limits the environments in which you can have life. Most places are way too hot, they're way too cold. And, you know, it's a sort of a long story, but you need a lot of things to go right. And if every one of the factors that needs to go right is say, have maybe one in a million chance of occurring, and then you have to multiply say 25 factors, you could very quickly swamp the probabilistic resources of the universe. That is if the universe, you could think of it as sort of this, this vast cosmic lottery with a lot of tries for getting habitable planets, it may just be that the conditions for habitability are so so unlikely that even in a universe as large as ours, it's, on, it's only happened one place. That's an open question at the moment, but in the pr- privileged planet, part of our argument is that everything we learn about what's needed for habitability pushes us in the direction of rarity. That is, there are likely very few habitable planets, certainly in our galaxy. Well, what, what about all of these discoveries we keep hearing about? We heard recently about one of the moons of mm-hmm. Jupiter where, wow, this looks like the place. Uh, it's not perfect no. for life? No, not at all. And if, Why not? Well, so if you look at, I, I always ask people, go back for the last 20 years at NASA's press releases on the discoveries of extrasolar planets, which we've been discovering these planets around other uh, star systems now since 1995. We've now discovered something like 5,000 other planets. Now, NASA always reports that it's a very Earth-like planet, but if you look at the details, what you'll discover is it's nowhere nearly as Earth-like as Mars is. Mars is the most Earth-like planet still known, and Mars is utterly lifeless. Even though it's in an otherwise habitable solar system, it's around a star that we know hosts at least one habitable planet. Uh, We know there's lots of planets out there. There's lots of stars for them to be around. None have come close to satisfying just the known requirements for habitability. So just because you get liquid water somewhere or just because you get a yellow dwarf star that's just one of the many, many ingredients that need to go right in a particular location. When you, in, in the privileged planet, you, you talk, uh, you offer various analogies mm. about the difficulty of actually achieving something like the preconditions right. for life. Uh, could you go Absolutely. To I mean, I, I think of it as a, as a vast bicycle lock, right, in which each one of these, in this case, it'd be a very generous analogy, but you know, it's the bicycle lock and you have to turn, let's say there's 30 of those little dials you have to turn and you right. got like one in 10 chance for each one. Well, one in 10 doesn't seem like much, but anyone that remembers their, uh, their multiplication remembers that when you're multiplying numbers less than one, the thing you get at the end, the answer is much, much smaller than one. And so that's where the probabilities come in. You can have a huge number of chances, a huge number of tries, uh, but if it's a highly improbable event, uh, you could still come up short. We know that there is at least one habitable planet in the universe. That's really all we know at the moment. 
and we also know a whole lot about the kinds of things you need in the planetary environment, the type of star you need, the kind of galaxy you need to be in, the location in the galaxy that you need to be in, even the kind of details of the interior of the planet. We have a, a molten iron core that creates a magnetic field that protects its surface. These are all really complicated things that are, would be hard to get simply from the laws of physics alone. Uh, and so it just may very well be that what we discover uh, in the next 10 or 15 years is that, look, the requirements for life are, are so improbable that even if there's another Earth-like planet out there, it's probably in some other galaxy that we'd never have a chance of communicating with. Well, whether we communicate it with or not, I, I mean, this is a, to me, one of the fascinating aspects of this question mm. that I never thought about before I read your book, which is that, okay, let's say there's a planet that's perfect. It's, right. it's it, remarkably, it's, it's a total replica of planet Earth. Mm. Would that necessarily mean that life arises on that planet? Not at all. Only if you confuse necessary and sufficient conditions. And so you can get all sorts of necessary conditions for life. Liquid water that stays liquid. It's in the Goldilocks zone around the star. It's got water and land, all these things you need. That doesn't mean that the information that life needs for the first reproducing cell is just sort of spring up. It's not like you water and wait a little while and all of a sudden you've got a, a complex organism. It takes a lot more than that. So, well, wait, I, I saw Fantasia. <laughs> I know how this works, right? I mean, in Fantasia, there's the primordial yes. soup. There it is. And yeah. there's a lightning bolt that comes down. And doesn't that produce life every time? Never, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, this is it didn't hear. No, it didn't hear, and it, it really. How I do mean, we know it didn't? Well, hear? we know it didn't hear because we know that the part of the definition of life is that life is an informational system uh, that's capable both of replicating and transmitting information. This is not what chemistry does. This is not what physics does. This is what life does. And so there's this fundamental jump between chemistry and physics that are needed for biological organisms, but they're nowhere nearly sufficient. And so it's quite possible you could have an otherwise habitable planet that is itself lifeless. And this is something that people often forget. They we imagine that, well, if we find evidence of liquid water somewhere, that's all you need. Well, that, that'd be interesting, and that might help us narrow the search. Still doesn't tell you if there's life there. It, it, it is a, a kind of an amazing question, which um, um, I do think a lot of people believe that science has already answered. Mm. Question being, how do you go from dead rock to the first living thing. How did right. that happen? I would love to be able to answer that question. <laughs> my, yeah, my colleague Steve Meyer at the Discovery Institute is the expert on this question, though, on the origin of biological information. I'm utterly persuaded, as he is, that uh, when you find high amounts of information appearing in a particular place, that is evidence of purpose. That's intelligent. It's evidence of intentionality. Uh, and I think that's what you see in life. Now, if I'm asked to prove what are the details, I think it's much easier to say and really to establish this is the result of intelligence than to say, okay, how exactly did it happen or when it happened? I don't know the answer to that. But I'm absolutely convinced that you're never going to get life simply if you're sticking to the resources of physics and chemistry. Well, what if... Um you almost, I say, you almost said those two words, intelligent mm. design. Oh, right. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if, if you're talking about intelligent design, mm -hmm. is intelligent design disproven if all of a sudden we have some space probe that finds in a nearby galaxy mm -hmm. somehow uh, that there are 
some kinds of organisms, living organisms. It is, is that the end of intelligent design? Not at all. In fact, the question of intelligent design does sort of weigh on the commonality or the rarity of life. If, you, if we found life that was sort of easily explained in, in terms of, uh, of, you know, random or impersonal causes, yeah, that might be the case. But uh, it's, for me, it's an open question whether life is rare or common in the universe. Whether it's intelligently designed is a separate question itself. And I, I may say, as, as a theist, I would say God could create a universe in which life is rare or one in which life is common. And so it really, from a theological perspective, I treat it as, in some ways, an open question. But I don't think that intelligent design stands or falls on that question. Another and related question, if somehow they did discover mm-hmm. uh, the, the existence of uh, some kind of organism, maybe a very primitive organism mm-hmm. on some other planet, does that mean that that planet would move inevitably, ineluctably to intelligent life? No, I don't think so. I mean, only if, of course, if you're an orthodox Darwinist and you think, okay, of course the Darwinist says, I, I, I'm not trying to explain the origin of life, but giving the fir- given the first reproducing cell and enough time and material resources, you're eventually going to get this kind of complexification in which you get large multicellular organisms. We, don't, we have no knowledge of any mechanism that actually does that. Natural selection and random variation does explain some things, but it's almost always just kind of around the edges of populations of organisms. We have no evidence, not a single example of fundamentally new forms coming into existence by the Darwinian mechanism. So again, you could have a watery, habitable planet with simple uh, unicellular life, and that might all be all there is. That's, that's a possibility. Well, I know that there are lots of people who put uh, profound hopes in SETI, yes. search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, you make a very provocative point, which is that sending out these signals into the cosmos could actually make it less likely that we are ever contacted by some other civilization. <laughs> How does that work? Well, I mean, it's of course, there's two things happening. We send signals. In fact, the very first time we, there was a radio transmission that's, that's getting ever dimmer and dimmer and farther away in space, we're also listening. So the SETI scientists spend most of their time trying to find signals, mostly in the radio spectrum, but not just in the radio spectrum, that would give evidence of intelligence out there somewhere. And what's the uh, best evidence they found so far? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. There have been a couple of, oh, maybe something's happening here, but so it turns out to be a... remember the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sounds of Silence? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's The Sounds of Silence. And I mean, there was excitement when, when we wrote The Privileged Planet. And, you know, even uh, uh, 10 years ago, there was excitement that something was going to happen. The irony of SETI is that they've now, I mean, searched millions and millions of possibilities and found absolutely nothing. And so if anything, I'm all for SETI research because I think, look, it... It's one way in which we could confirm or disconfirm this idea of life's rarity. Uh, I would be tickled pink, if, frankly, if we discovered uh, intelligent life elsewhere in, in the galaxy. I think either question, honestly, the answer to either question is interesting. I just think based on what we know about the needs for uh, uh, habitability in a planetary environment, uh, that there's no evidence that this is a widely common sort of arrangement. In fact, of the 5,000 uh, likely extrasolar planets we've discovered. All of them have been different systems, which might have one or two things similar to Earth, but oh, always, always, in every case, are disqualified for some other reason. Okay, one, one of the things that um, when you talk about the search for extra ten, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, mm-hmm. the New York Times recently had a piece 
about some of the opposition to SETI, mm. some of the opposition to contacting other civilizations. Yes. Because there's sort of an assumption that that civilization will be benign. <laughs> right. And uh, there are a number of scientists yes. who come forward and say, don't send those signals yeah. because the civilization that we find may come back and eat us. No, that's I mean, right. In I, fact, they may be on their way for all we know, right? We've been sending these signals out for decades. If they're, you know, if they're 75 uh, light years away, they must, might just be sort of a few years out. That's a possibility. I think Stephen Hawking is worried about that. Uh, I think it's more likely that we would detect intelligence uh, somewhere a few light years away than that they would be able to travel here even if there's, they're there. So the existence of intelligent life is one thing interstellar stellar travel is quite another. So that's is not something, even if I thought life was likely to be common in the galaxy, it's, this would not be my top concern. I mean, I think a lot of this is because we've all seen Independence Day, right? So it's a, it's a possible worry, but I, I just, I think even if they were malevolent, it takes a huge amount of resources and energy to travel in interstellar space to wipe out a species on another planet for no apparent reason. Okay. I, I know that you write a little bit about Drake's equation, yes. which is this famous calculation. Mm -hmm. And I was reading about this, and it, 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 it's stunning. Uh, they come up with putting in certain variables yes. to determine how many civilizations That's there right. would be in the cosmos. I think they've come up with numbers as high as 156 million yeah. civilizations. That's right. You get these numbers. It's all it's all based on the assumptions that you plug in, of course. Can you say so, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, garbage out, in, gar yeah. garbage out. Right. So if all your variables are close to one, right, then you add them up, you're gonna you're gonna end up with a quite generous number. But I think someone described Drake's equation as a way to compress a large amount of ignorance into a very small space, <laughs> and that really is what it is. I mean, other than the incidence of planets around stars, which is an answer we're going to get here in the next 10 or 15 years with the Kepler telescope, we're going to be able to say what proportion of stars in our galaxy li are likely to have a planet around it. That's really one of the only variables that we're going to have hard numbers on. Uh, the other things are um, we're, we're going to have to infer by indirect evidence, such as the nature of the star that we see itself. We just don't have nearly enough data to be able to specify with that degree of precision either how few or how many possible civilizations I, and there are. I know that even people who don't necessarily share your assumptions, right. uh, the assumptions put forward in Privileged Planet, uh, there are some uh, folks on the other side who acknowledge that putting in probably more accurate variables yes. to Drake's equation, it comes out to a chance of, uh, what is it, one in uh, to the power of 11? Something at one in 10 to the 11th or something like that, yeah. right? And uh, I think that e being even very, very generous, um, you end up swamping the resources of the galaxy just based upon what we know now. That is um, just what we know now. I think we're, Guillermo Gonzalez and I are quite confident we're not going to find another Earth-like planet uh, anywhere in, in the galaxy. But our, the implication of our argument isn't that there aren't other habitable planets. The main implication is that if there are, they are almost certainly going to be Earth-like. They're going to be almost the same size. They're going to be around the same star. They're going to have a large, well-placed moon. They're going to see perfect solar eclipses like us. That's really the implication of our argument, If is that habitable planets have to be very, very much like Earth. And so and, if we and, find but, one. And well, the other aspect of this that is fascinating is they could be exactly like Earth without uh, having developed an intelligent life. Yeah. Um, Guillermo Gonzalez, I should have mentioned, is your co-author on mm. this fine book, uh, The Privileged Planet. It's um, a, 
a book that I read. It came out in 96, right? It came out in actually 2004. Uh, 2004. Yeah. I, I know that you have some of the writing. Yes, exactly. begun long before That's that. right. But uh, it's, it's such an important book and such an important issue. Very quickly, in just a moment we mm. have left, the good news and then the bad news. Bad news first about the notion that we may be alone in the universe. Well, I, sup- I suppose we could look at this as bad news because it seems sort of sad to imagine uh, empty space, right? This vast universe in which we're the only ones that are here. On the other hand, uh, that also, I think, ought to help us focus on uh, the importance and the rarity uh, and the preciousness of life and of life on Earth. So um, I honestly think a lot of this depends upon your metaphysics. I mean, I don't, frankly, I don't, we may be the only chemical life in the universe. I don't think that we're the only life and the only intelligence in reality. Um, but I do think that the best way finally to sort of pursue this question and to answer it is empirically. Don't sort of ins- impose your metaphysical assumptions on the evidence. Let's just look at the best evidence of the universe itself and try to come up with the, the actual answer to this question, I think that that's actually going to be possible maybe in our lifetimes. And coming up to answers to that question is, uh, to all questions really, and the most important questions, is part of what we're going to be trying to do here on this series, Great Minds with Michael Medved. So glad to have Jay Richards uh, of Catholic University of America joining us uh, for this edition of Great Minds with Michael Medved. It is sponsored by Discovery Institute, at which uh, Jay is a senior fellow. And uh, wherever you are, uh, if you are interested in this series and this kind of conversation, you can learn more about the evidence for intelligent design, about the position of our privileged planet, by visiting our home on the internet. That's mindswithmedved.com mindswithmedved.com where you can and really should donate to make future shows possible also be sure to subscribe so you won't miss new episodes of Great Minds with Michael Medved thanks for listening to Great Minds with Michael Medved available at mindswithmedved.com Great Minds with Michael Medved is produced by Jeremy Steiner and Greg Tomlin and is copyrighted by Discovery Institute 2018 